It has been a rough year, hasn't it? <laughs> but do you know what? Um, a balm in the midst is the singing of the saints together. Um, some would say it's essential. I certainly believe so. And just listening to one another um, lift up praise to the Lord, boy, that is a taste of heaven. And we desperately need such a taste in these times, don't we? It has. It has been a rough year. And our world entered a new decade with high hopes of what might be, uh, what progress and triumphs would come, and then the pandemic shut everything down. And then in the midst of that, the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd set off mass protests. Some people took advantage of this and started rioting and looting, still seeing the effects of this night after night in Portland and other cities. Then throw in an aggressive hurricane season down south and unprecedented wildfires all along the west coast. I heard we have the worst air quality in the world. In fact, if you step outside and look around at the smoke, you might think that seems to be a metaphor for what this year is. Churches are being fined and taken to court for worshiping together. Political climate of our nation is at such a fever pitch that it seems nearly impossible to have civil discourse without descending into a screaming match. Millions of Americans support unbiblical policies and solutions and oftentimes anti-biblical ones, even those who profess faith in Christ. It seems that things are going from bad to worse. Despite what it may seem, I am not here to depress you. We were told by the Apostle Paul that things would get worse before Christ comes, weren't we? In 2 Timothy 3, which is the last letter that, uh, letter that the Apostle wrote, he said, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceived and being De or deceiving and being deceived. Well, today and on the next Lord's Day, we're going to continue our walk through the Sermon on the Mount. And what I hope you'll see today is that despite the seeming free fall of our world into deeper and more creative ungodliness and distress, we are not without hope. All is not lost. I would suggest to you that as we look at Matthew 5.13 today, what we're going to see is that Jesus Christ is the hope that this world needs and that the help that God gives in the midst of this world is you, his people. So with that in mind, would you please open with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 13, but to give the context and to see how it fits... I'll read to you verses 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. The title of our sermon today is The Conservative Christian. Now, that's a play on words. Many people in America think that Christianity simply boils down to political conservatism. But this sermon is not about politics. Because Christianity isn't about politics. And this statement of our Lord isn't about politics. I mean, there may well be applications for how we as Christians steward the gift of our political engagement and activities, but that's not the kind of conservatism we see here in this text. Now, the kind of conservatism we see here in verse 13 is that Christ's people conserve a sin-decaying world. Christ's people conserve a sin-decaying world. We are saved out of a sin-decaying world through the gospel and then live as God's holy people in the midst of a sin-decaying world in order to act as conservatives of godliness in a sin-decaying world. That is, we conserve truth and goodness and beauty in a world where Satan, the flesh, and the world are seeking to destroy those things. And so if I could put it to you this way, today as we look at verse 13, we'll look at Jesus' statement about the salt of the earth and consider the Christian's call to conservation or preservation, if you will. And then next week, we'll look at verses 14 through 16 and the light of the world and consider the Christian's call to proclamation. Today, conservation. Next week, proclamation. Well, in order to understand what Jesus means when he says, you are the salt of the earth, we need to first understand what he implies about the world, what he assumes we already understand about the world in which we live. And just to be clear, Jesus is not talking about this world of, as it's created. He's talking about a humanity that is set against God, rejecting Jesus Christ and walking in its own way. That's what he means. Well, we'll look in a few minutes at what salt does, but as I said a moment ago, Jesus focuses on how salt conserves what is decaying. And so in his metaphor, if his people are the salt of the earth, then that implies that the world is in fact decaying. It's on a downward spiral. And if 2020 wasn't enough to convince you of that, I'd invite you back to the beginning, where God created a world, a cosmos that was crowned with perfection, 
beautiful display of his glory, a masterpiece. And set in the center of this is God's special focus of attention is the earth and everything in it as his crown jewel. And at the center of that, he puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, who were given the amazing calling of spreading his glory. And if we could look at the garden as it were like a temple for God's glory right in the middle of the earth, their calling was to take that temple and spread it out to the corners of the globe and see that it's filled with worshipers of God that God would be magnified. And he gave them everything they needed to do in order to do this. And what happened almost immediately? Toward the God who had done nothing but bless them. They rebelled. They went their own way. They rejected his goodness. And then they had kids. And the firstborn murdered the secondborn. Great start. Ten generations later, let me read to you from Genesis 6, what is God's assessment of humanity in just ten generations? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. God flooded the world, saving only Noah and his family, and then About a hundred years later, all of Noah's descendants gather at Babel in rejection of God's command to fill the earth. Now fast forward to the Exodus. As God's people, chosen by him, are taken out of slavery after 400 years, and though they had what no other nation had, which was the presence of God among them, what do they do almost immediately after leaving their slavery? They're grumbling, they're complaining, they're committing idolatry and adultery. In the record of Israel in the Old Testament, God's own covenant people chosen by him and called by his name is a record of depravity, unfaithfulness, rebellion, and ultimately exile. And the nations around Israel aren't any better. And so the biblical record has one world empire after another walking away from the knowledge of the one true God and descending deeper and deeper into sin. That was the world into which Christ was born, as light and hope. The only hope. Now let's skip ahead to recent history. After the Age of Enlightenment came Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, which has become the dominant framework for understanding the history of the cosmos and the human race. Falsely, I might add, and yet if you challenge that, you are considered to be a science denier and to be living in the dark ages. This idea of the upward evolution of people led to the great expectation that in the 20th century we would see more human progress than in any other age. And what we ended up having was the bloodiest and cruelest and most depressing century for those who thought the golden age had come in all of its glory and that humanity would be its own savior. Not many people think that anymore, for good reason. If you would please turn to Romans 1 with me and allow me to summarize. No, let's allow actually God through the Apostle Paul to summarize where we are. What is our condition apart from Christ? I'll begin reading in verse 18 and go through 21, and then we'll jump ahead to chapter 3 for a few verses. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's not that God has not shown himself. It's not that God has not revealed something of who he is, his power enough for every single person to be without excuse, knowing we need to respond to a God like that. But instead of submission and joyfully following in his ways, we've as our natural condition is, suppress the truth and unrighteousness, chased after our own agenda to the point where we have become fools, is what God clearly teaches. And then just in case somebody says, yeah, but I knew someone once, they were super good. He goes forward in chapter 3, verse 10, and he says this, which is exclusive to every person. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That my friends, is the condition of the world. Human nature is dead set against God, and left to itself, the world is like Lord of the Flies. This is the collective humanity apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and it is a portrait of us except for the grace of God. This is why Paul describes each person's natural spiritual condition as being dead in the trespasses and sins in which he once walked. Spiritual death is the most apt way to see what's going on. And so that's the background. That's what is assumed in Jesus' statement. You are the salt of the earth. See, salt is a profoundly important thing, especially in Jesus' day. And so let's look for a moment to understand Jesus' words. Let's look at what salt does. See, we are so blessed to live in the age of refrigeration. We don't think about it much, do we? We just put everything in, it stays for an abnormally long period of time until you go, what is in it? I don't know what I'm eating, but it tastes good, and the fridge keeps it going. But really, it's a recent invention. And so throughout human history, you couldn't keep food from spoiling by cooling it down unless maybe you were an Eskimo. And I don't know, because I haven't researched how Eskimos kept their food. But I'm guessing if you had a bunch of snow around, that was about as good as it gets. But for most people... You had to eat it quickly or do something else in order to keep it. And salt was your answer. Salt was a staple for life, and without it, people were in big trouble. Its primary use, the most important thing it would do, is to preserve or conserve meat and other perishable food items. Keep them from decaying, otherwise they would be gone pretty quickly. And the way that you would do that is you would rub the salt into the meat and really work it in so that it would pervade the meat. And it had a conserving effect. So that otherwise, it ended up with some serious food poisoning. It also served as a staple of medical care. It's a, a natural antiseptic. And so salt would be rubbed into a wound to keep harmful bacteria from growing and causing a 
bigger problem than you already had. It was also applied to the soil as weed control. And of course, as we use it primarily today, salt gives flavor to otherwise bland food. And so there's something enjoyable in your food experience because salt is there. And so you see how valuable and diverse salt was in Jesus' day, which is why Roman soldiers sometimes would be paid with salt because it was so useful, so valuable. And if a soldier faltered at his post or was lazy, they would say, that guy's not worth his salt. That's where the phrase comes from. And because of the rich value of salt, it was an important part of the covenant between God and his people. With every single grain offering, we're told in Leviticus 2.13, it had to be salted to be accepted by God. And when the prophet Elisha was called upon to address the problem of a poisoned water supply for a small city or a town, what he did is said, bring me a bowl of salt. And then he threw the salt in and God healed the waters and made it potable. So salt is a conservative. It adds flavor to whatever it's put on and it keeps harmful bacteria from growing and it brings healing. If you don't have it, there was rapid decay. If you did have it, there was life and joy and peace. And this is what Jesus had in mind when he tells his people that they're the salt of the earth. And primarily, the main idea he has there is the way that salt conserves what it's rubbed into and keeps it from decay. Okay, that's the main aspect of salt behind Jesus' statement. And so with that in mind, let's ask, how exactly do Christians salt the earth? If you want to keep crystal clear what it means to be the salt of God in a sin-decaying world, then you must anchor yourself to the gospel. Anchor yourself to the gospel. See, Matthew 5.13 comes in here right after the Beatitudes for a reason. We've spent eight sermons looking at the Beatitudes, and we said that the big idea there is this, that those who are saved look like their Savior, okay? So we do not pursue the Beatitudes kind of a life apart from faith in Christ because we cannot live a Beatitudes life apart from faith in Christ. Anyone who's ever tried has ended up in the most rank hypocrisy and the biggest failure you could possibly imagine. We can't do it. Because without Christ, we're the kind of people we read about in Romans 1 and Romans 3. With Christ, we have a new heart and a new spirit he's put within us. And the new life takes root and it looks like Jesus. And it's described for us in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are a picture of the Christian who conserves goodness in society. Who blesses those around him. And the gospel is always the wellspring from which those qualities come. Always. See, the people who are the blessed ones of the Beatitudes are those who are born again through the gospel, whose faith is in Christ alone, who are living in repentance from sin and toward God in obedience. And because of God's saving work in them, they seek to show Christ in every part of life. Christians salt the earth by seeking to show Christ in every part of life. They are poor in spirit, mourning over sin, meek, hungry for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. The world is so different from them. They are so like Christ and different from the world that sometimes the world will even persecute them in order to suppress the testimony of their lives. 
The normal Christian life described by Jesus in the Beatitudes is the heart of what it looks like to be the salt of the earth. This kind of person who looks like Jesus and lives the life of the Beatitudes by his grace will be the ones who are conserving whatever goodness remains in a world that is decaying under the weight and influence of sin. These people have gospel influence. And this is specifically teased out by Paul in the scripture passage read to us this morning by Tyler in Colossians 3. And where does the apostle begin? He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you who were dead have now been made alive with Jesus through the gospel, then you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And because Jesus died for you and rose again to save you from your sins, the life that you live now is lived to reflect his glory. And then he specifically draws that out, one aspect at a time. Because in the midst of a world that's chasing after sexual immorality and covetousness and evil desire and malice and slander, Christians live lives of truth, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. They are the ones who love richly because God has richly loved them. When the world all around them grumbles and complains, they are the thankful ones who remind people how many blessings there are to be grateful for. Their homes reflect the gospel. Wives submitting to and respecting their husbands and husbands lavishing love on their wives. Children being nurtured under the lordship of Christ. Christians ought to make the most faithful, hardworking, dependable, and enjoyable employees. And in our conversations, our words are different than the world's. And so the apostle says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so the first commitment of the Christian who conserves the goodness of God in a sin-decaying world is to always be anchored to the gospel. The second commitment of that kind of a Christian, the only kind of a Christian who is salt in this world, is to show Christ in every part of life. Thoughts, words, attitudes, actions, relationships, parenting, employment, political engagement, marriage, leisure, entertainment. Nothing is off the table because there is nothing over which Jesus Christ does not reign as Lord. And so if you're growing in your relationship with the Lord and are growing in sanctification, then the people around you won't be able to help but be influenced by what you bring to the table, which is Christ in you. Have you ever been in a group of friends who you know would speak profanely, but because you are there, they hold back? That's just one tiny example that happens all the time of what it means to have a salt influence, conserving goodness in what otherwise would be given over to the decay of sin. And if you've got your gospel antenna up, you know that that kind of a thing doesn't save anybody. No one's ever saved by not swearing when they would have or by not doing the thing they would have except you're there. We don't save anybody. But how often does that kind of an influence pave the way for the kind of gospel conversation that does allow someone to know how they can be saved? If today we're looking at the conserving influence of the gospel through us, next week we will look at the proclaiming influence, which is how people hear and are saved. That's what we'll see next week. But Jesus' point here 
is that there is a very tangible influence because of the gospel, even among those who do not believe. And a third commitment comes out here in our verse. So not only are goodness-conserving Christians anchored to the gospel, not only do they seek to show Christ in every aspect of their lives, but they are also committed to, this is important, being in the world. Being in the world. You may have noticed that salt conserves nothing it's not in contact with. It flavors nothing it doesn't touch. It can sit on a shelf for years and never do a grain of good to anything. The only kind of meat that was preserved by salt was the meat that had salt rubbed into it. And anything that had salt rubbed into it was influenced by it in one way or another. The great bishop J.C. Ryle said, salt imparts a portion of its taste to everything it is mixed with. And in the same way, Jesus means to convey that his intention for us as conserving his goodness in the world comes by actually being in contact with the world. And so one of the great, uh, great tragedies of any age for Christians is the tendency to cluster together in isolation from non-believers. Monasticism flourished for centuries, and the world was the worse for it. And too often when Christians are in the world, they give off an air of condemning judgmentalism or boring complacency, something that nobody wants to see, nobody wants any business with. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not acted and looked so much like undertakers. And if you know the undertaker in our church, he's the farthest thing from like an undertaker. He's full of the joy of the Lord. His influence is very salty in the best possible way. So pastors have no business being undertakers. See, friends, because when we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit's influence and we submit ourselves to the word of God, the kind of thing that ends up happening is you start to show love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the kinds of things that are the farthest thing from being boring, lifeless qualities that are drab and unappealing. Rather, Christ in us has a powerful effect to promote the best in those around us, when otherwise they would be given over more and more to the decaying influence of sin. This should pave the way for us to share Christ with those who are attracted to our company rather than pushing away those who need the gospel most. So that when our unbelieving friends and coworkers spend time with us, it should have the same influence that Helen Hunt's character had on Jack Nicholson's in the movie As Good As It Gets, as he sits across the table and says, you make me want to be a better man. We should make the people in our lives who don't know Christ want to be better people. I was thinking recently about one of my heroes, William Wilberforce mostly because Jeremy asked me a question about him on the podcast. And his portrait sits just above my desk um, because the example of how Christ powerfully transformed his life and worked its way out into society is an example that I want to follow. I want to leave a mark. It doesn't matter so much if I'm remembered, but I want to leave a mark on the society that I have interaction with. See, when Wilberforce came to Christ, he thought that in order to be faithful to Jesus, he he should probably leave politics and become a pastor. 
And his pastor friend, John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, convinced him and exhorted him to stay where God had put him because God had a purpose for him there, as he does for all of his people in every legitimate station in life. And the conservative effects of Wilberforce's Christianity stemmed the tide of moral decay in an age that was so corrupt that it makes some of the things going on now look as if they're pretty clean. Oh, and don't forget that because of the tireless work of Wilberforce and countless Christians who banded together with him, slavery was abolished in the British Empire, and the world was better for it. And even though he was severely affected by health problems that kept him bent over and in pain in bed many days out of his life, the joy of Christ and the vibrancy of his testimony still shone through. And so one contemporary author of Wilberforce's was in Parliament one day when Wilberforce stood up to give a speech, and he recounted it like this. He said, I saw a shrimp mount the table, but as I listened, he grew and grew until the shrimp became a whale. He was vibrant because of Christ in him. So are you tethered to the gospel? Are you devoted to growing in your relationship with the Lord and his likeness? Are you in the world? Because if you've trusted Christ for your salvation, then one of the primary purposes that you have on this earth, a purpose you can serve here but not in heaven, is to influence the unbelievers around you for good and to conserve the goodness of God in a world that needs it the most and yet doesn't know it. So you begin by looking in your workplace or in your home and asking what kind of an influence do people see in you because of Jesus that they otherwise wouldn't? A wonderful and very convenient place to find opportunities to be in the world serving and doing tangible good because you love Jesus are actually our affiliate ministries. We don't have to invent things to do in order to be rubbing shoulders and being salty in this world in the sense that Jesus is talking about. You could call up Love, Inc. or Tatum's Gifts or Life Choices or the Union Gospel Mission and say, hey, I, I can't commit to anything regular necessarily, but I got a couple hours on this Saturday. Where could you use me? And see what the Lord does with that. If you thought things were bad now, imagine how much worse they would be if all of the Christians were taken out of the world. There will come a day, it's called the rapture, when that will happen. And if you read what happens next, it's a pretty bad seven years. The world needs you, folks. It needs Jesus in you, and it can't substitute anybody else for you. But a word of caution is in order, of course. Because as salt is doing its conserving work against decay, don't forget the threat of decay is actually very real. There are actual evil forces at work as Christians are conserving the goodness of God in this world. The world, the flesh, and the devil are real. They are very active. And as sinners saved by grace, we must be on guard against reverse influence. And that's what Jesus warns us about here in verse 13. He says, if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. To us, that may seem a little bit odd because we're not used to salt that doesn't taste salty. In fact, categorically, that's not going to happen with the kind of salt you have in your kitchen because the sodium chloride, the salt that we have, that's the extent of my chemistry. Don't ask me any other chemistry questions. That is a very stable element. But if you were to go back to Jesus' day in Palestine, 
most of the salt there came in rock form from the region of the Dead Sea. Yes, there was sodium chloride, which was the good stuff. But then you also had um, gypsum, other minerals. And the salt would be the first thing to be washed away if there was a rain or if, or if some kind of moisture got into the rock salt. And so you'd find out very quickly when you got home whether or not the salt you had actually was salty. And if it wasn't any good for getting dinner on the table tomorrow, then you'd throw it out onto the road and it would be walked over by travelers until it was worked into the ground and you had a sterile road. And so Jesus' caution to us here is that as we're living as his people in the world, we must be vigilant that the influence of Christ is working in the world through us rather than the world working its influence into us. We must keep uh, enjoying life and all the blessings that the Lord gives us that are legitimate things from his hand. We enjoy them. We live in the world as influencers for Christ, but we can't lose our anchor in the gospel or ignore Christ through spiritual complacency because then it will be almost certain that we will think we have more influence in the world than we actually do while the world has begun influencing and forming itself in us. And so as you examine your Christian influence, what do you do if you find that you've all but lost your tastiness? If you're not really conserving much of anything, but perhaps contributing to the spread of decay, what do you do at that point? I don't want you, Christian friend, thinking that Jesus is here saying that you will be thrown out of the kingdom because that's not true. If you are in Christ, remember what Jesus said. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's an absolute statement. It's not contingent upon you at all. It's just a fact. In Christ, your salvation is secure. So your saltiness may not be able to be restored by you, but remember who the source of your saltiness is. It's Jesus Christ. So return to the source. Repentance is the path forward. See his savor once again. Be with him. Rejoice in the gospel. Remember the love you had at first and seek his grace and he will restore it. But perhaps you're hearing this and you're not sure that you've ever known the source of saltiness. Perhaps you know for a fact that you have never known the Savior, that you are one of those who is decaying under the weight of sins. If that's you, then I would say to you, then come to the source. Come to Jesus. In a parallel passage in Luke 14, Jesus says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you, if you do not know Christ, have ears to hear what he is saying? Will you now seek the Lord for forgiveness, confessing your sins and trusting in him alone? Friend, he died for you and rose again to save you. He will not turn you away. He cannot because he paid for your sins. And if you come, he will give you a new heart. He will transform you and you in turn will be the salt of the earth. Christ's people conserve a sin-decaying world. How desperately does the world need it? Just look around. 
Well, next week, we'll turn our thoughts from our conserving effects in this decaying world to our proclaiming effects as light in the darkness of this world. But by God's grace, may we go and conserve that which is good. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for declaring to us through your son, Jesus Christ, who we are in him and what we're for. Have mercy on us where we have forgotten. Cleanse us where we have allowed the world to seep in and take root in our hearts. Rid our hearts of all idols that compete for the allegiance to Jesus that only he is due. Renew in us a fervent love for our Savior that brings him honor and glory and majesty in this dark world, that brings his influence where Satan reigns, knowing that one day he is coming and our king will reign upon the earth and we with him. And oh, may we labor, may we labor to see that kingdom come, that kingdom grow and the influence of Jesus spread wherever you have placed us. We thank you for specifically choosing each one of us to be salt in the Yakima Valley. May we be faithful in that calling together with all your true church. Help us to see the opportunities before us, to be active and proactive, and to spread abroad the influence of our our good and loving master in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in every place where we have the opportunity to conserve what is decaying because of sin. And it's for the glory of Jesus. It is in his name and through him alone that we pray. Amen.